Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This lovely, wet summer's evening. My name is Brian McGough. I'm familiar to some of you. I, I know some of your faces. And I'm from the School of Philosophy in Dublin. And tonight's talk is entitled Philosophy and Finding Peace. Now, the subtitle is that peace is ever available, but for some reason rarely availed. So this is quite challenging because this is something that's on the top of most people's wish lists. According to the words of the wise, it's available, and for some reason we don't avail of it. So it's a little strange that there's something we all would dearly love. Apparently it's available, and we don't actually avail of it. And yet at the same time, we spend considerable time trying to find it. We go to great lengths to try and find peace. So it might be a certain time of the day or a certain time of the week, like on Friday evenings I'll be a little bit more rested and peaceful maybe, or on the weekend, or with something like a favourite book or a place, like a walk on the beach, or a particular time, like going on holidays or when I retire, that's when I'll find peace. Now, this is a lot of activity and endeavour and it's ironic that it's activity looking for peace. Now, none of us are interested in temporary peace. If this talk was about discovering temporary peace or a, a short amount of peace for some short period of time, it wouldn't hold much attraction. So we're looking for a peace that's permanent and limitless in supply. And the, the difficulty is, or the false notion is, that somehow the world is going to provide it. The activities of the world or the accumulations of my life are somehow going to provide this peace. And if you just think back over the summer, all the different activities, I went away for a two weeks lovely holiday in the sun and it provided lots of variety, lots of activities, lots of change of scenery, but it doesn't necessarily provide peace. And no matter how we rearrange the activities of our life, they will not provide peace. They will provide variety, yes, but not peace. This world we live in, this creation which is ever-changing, cannot yield something that's permanent. And a creation that is limited cannot yield something that is limitless. So seeking peace that's permanent and limitless in supply in a world that's constantly changing, is really seeking the impossible. Now, we may be so caught up in activity that we think inactivity is peace. I don't know if you recognize thinking things like, I'll have a rest on Saturday. I'll have a rest when this is over. It'll be, in fact, it'll be great when this is over. Could even be this lecture. Or when the week is over, when the month is over. I was in a school earlier on in the week and there were teachers talking about the beginning of the year and they were already talking about the end of the year. <laughs> and the idea is that the end of the year there's an opportunity for peace. At the beginning of the year it's not an opportunity for peace and rest. We're so taken with the activity that we think when activity stops there will be some level of rest or some level of peace. 
And this is looking forward to a time in the future when I'm going to have a, a break, a little, a little rest. Unfortunately, this is a lie we tell ourselves. We imagine in the mind that we're going to have a rest at some time in the future, but then the actual reality disappoints. Now, Marsilio Ficino, he was said to have been the, the father of the Italian Renaissance, speaks of this in one of his letters. The letter's entitled The Folly and Misery of Men. I'm not sure why, but he wrote about five letters with the same title, so he must be trying to make a point. And this is what he has to say. Because of their ceaseless longing for what is to come, they do not enjoy what is present. Although movement has to be stilled for there to be rest, yet those men are forever beginning new and different movements in order that they may one day come to rest. They accumulate wealth as though they would never die, and they misuse pleasures as though they would die each day. Do you recognize this longing for a future peace? And it can be a, a, just an undercurrent of longing, quiet undercurrent of longing for peace, longing for rest. Constantly thinking, I'll be at peace in the future, means I cannot be at peace now. And if peace cannot be found now in the present, then it can never be found. We can only truly enjoy what is present when we ourselves are present. And the wise are always experiencing this peace, regardless of their external circumstances, whether they're active or inactive, the wise are always at peace. There is a teacher known to the school, he's known as Shankaracharya. Down through the years, the school has had contact with this teacher and he's answered many questions, and one of them is about this subject. So I'm just going to read an extract from what he had to say about this. People become involved in the money they earn and the goods which they possess and the pleasures at which they aim and so miss the peace of the self. This peace is ever-present, natural, and life-giving. We create the agitation which is unnatural and life-consuming. So he's saying that peace is ever-present, natural, and life-giving. And the ironic bit is that we create the agitation which is unnatural and life-consuming. Now, it's not that we suffer agitation and all the challenges of life. We actually create the agitation. Now, this is ironic because we're looking for peace and apparently we are creating agitation. And agitation gives the appearance that the peace is lost. It makes it look like there is no peace. It's gone. I don't know why, but I always remember my mother saying, anything for peace. I always thought that was just a man's thing, but I, I distinctly remember my mother saying it, anything for peace. The truth is that agitation just covers the peace. It doesn't actually displace it, it covers it. It's still there, but unseen and unexperienced. This self-created agitation then sends us looking for peace where it cannot be found. Not here, it's somewhere else. 
definitely won't find it here. And this is a fundamental mistake. So the piece is there, it's covered in the agitation, and that makes us believe that we have to go somewhere and look for peace, to find it somewhere. So it'll come from external things. Another person, Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, would provide it. If I satisfy all my desires, that'll bring peace. All my wants, all my wishes, all my dreams. Perhaps wealth will bring peace. That'll do it. Wealth. And so it's like the race is on under ignorance. Some even believe that the only peace is on death. We're familiar with the expression, resting in peace. Aren't we? I'm hoping to experience some of this peace before, before that time comes along. Now there is an interesting little proposition here. The peace that's spoken of, or the peace that's referred to when someone, who's, you know, someone who says, may they rest in peace, that peace is the same peace that's available right now. And you're supposed to find that extraordinary. So when we say, may they rest in peace, and the peace we're talking about finding, they're one and the same. And the most positive way of looking at that is we don't have to die before we can rest in peace. We can rest in peace in this world, in this creation right now. Now for true peace, we must use the mind and the heart in a true way and realize that the direction is inward and not outward. And this is often spoken of, you know, discover this true peace within yourself. And what exactly does that mean, to look within, discover this peace within? Well, the first aspect would be to stop looking externally, to stop believing that it's going to be discovered externally. And begin the inquiry inwards. And it's really about discovering or realizing the truth about myself. And this peace that we're looking for is an aspect of that true self, that truth about myself. One of the aspects is this peace. In different traditions it's described in different ways. If you look at the Christian tradition, we're told that we're made in the image and likeness of God. In other words, we're perfect. If we look to the East, in the Ashtavakra Gita, our true nature is described as being free from desire, free from evil, and free from fear. Another piece of scripture from the East, referred to as the Upanishads, my true nature is described as the peaceful, the good, the one without a second. So these are different scriptural authorities describing this true self within. And this description means that we are already perfect, we're already free, and we're already peaceful. And if we go looking externally for these, we're actually looking for what we are. Now, how can we be certain that peace exists? The very fact that we're looking for it 
is an indication of its existence. It's impossible to go looking for something unless we have some knowledge of it. So we have a knowledge of this self, which is somehow covered over or forgotten. But it is that fundamental knowledge that sends us in search. And it's in a way, it's like we're just looking in the wrong places. We can also describe the peace precisely. If I asked you to describe what kind of peace would you love to enjoy all the time, we could fill the flip chart with a description of it. And we know what we're talking about. We know we're not talking temporary. And we know exactly what we mean when we're referring to this peace. We may each describe it differently, but we do know what it is. So there must be a substantial knowledge about it there, which is proof of its existence, really. Another way is to apply reason. We only recognize movement by virtue of the presence of stillness. We recognize sounds by the presence of the underlying silence. And we recognize and appreciate the agitation by the underlying peace. In other words, agitation takes place in peace. So it doesn't displace it or cover it. In truth, in fact, agitation reveals it because it's taking place in peace. We cannot really create peace. It underlies everything. We either join it or leave it. The big surprise is that we leave it more than join it. And the question is why? In spite of our experience and the authority of scriptures, we keep leaving it and looking externally. We keep exchanging our peace for external things. So, for example, we would exchange it for the slightest little thing. So bad weather, like this evening's weather. Or no parking space. Wet hair. I was in a building today, actually, with a group of ladies, and we were going for lunch it was pandemonium at lunchtime because it was raining and they were all talking about their hair. <laughs> Nobody would go to lunch. <laughs> Clamped car, red traffic light, waiting in a queue, noisy children. There's so many little tiny situations we exchange this peace for. Last Christmas I heard a report on the radio, a disease that can strike at Christmas time. This is in America now. This is a serious disease. It's called Yiggs. This is true now. And apparently there are counsellors on standby throughout New York to take your call if you were suffering from this dreaded disease. Now, Yiggs stands for Yuletide Inappropriate Gift Syndrome. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> now, a lot of us have suffered from Yiggs. <laughs> On occasion, certainly I have had my fair share of yigs. But if you open the box and you're not happy with the present, then you're suffering from the dreaded yigs. I thought it was a joke on the radio, but it wasn't too serious. We could surrender our peace and give up peace for something like the inappropriate gift or a late aircraft or, as we said, no parking space. 
people not behaving the way we want them to behave, things not going the way we want them to go, the weather. So we're exchanging our peace all the time. In fact, we're giving it away for these trivial events. Now, does true peace mean abandoning the world? No. In fact, we could give up everything. We could sell our homes, cars, stop work, and give whatever wealth we've accumulated to the poor and still not discover this peace. In fact, doing that would only confirm the error. So giving up everything and expecting to be peaceful is confirming the mistake that peace is found in the world, in the creation itself. The Shankaracharya describes the creation as a play held in bliss where activities abound and causes no stress. There's no stress-causing agent in the creation. It's like if you take this environment here this evening, this hotel, these rooms, chairs, I mean, this is all designed, in fact, to create the opposite. So the creation is not the difficulty. The weather is not the difficulty. The difficulty is that we create the agitation. And in a way, it's that simple. We're creating agitation. In our search for peace, we're creating agitation. We could have created agitation coming to this lecture this evening. Imagine coming to a lecture about finding peace and creating lots of agitation on the journey. But we could have, it's possible. So we create this agitation through the misuse of mind and heart. Peace would then come from true use of mind and heart. So it's not about abandoning the world or isolating ourselves or segregating ourselves. In fact, it's more about fully engaging in the world and using the mind and heart truly. Now we could test the theory. The, the theory or the subtitle is that the piece is available, ever available, and we're not availing of it. Isn't that right? Which means the piece is available right now, isn't it? Yeah? So we test that, will we? Would you like to test that theory? Yes. So if you sit around on your chairs and unfold yourself, unfold your arms and... And just sit quietly and unfold any part of you. That means your arms and your legs. And just simply allow the mind to fall quiet and still, just as you sit there. Leave the day in the past where it belongs. And let go any thoughts or considerations. Let go any expectations or desires of what's to come. And allow the mind and heart to be at rest right now. Just feel the feet on the floor. And connect with the listening. Just let everything go. 
continuously let go. Ah, that's fine. Did we connect with a sense of the peace? Yeah? So that's it really, isn't it? It is there. And when everything else subsides, that's what's there, that's what remains. But we have to be fully present to connect with the peace. If we're on the surface constantly, that connection is not possible. In a way, that's what's happening. We're on the surface. We cannot connect with the past. We cannot connect with the future. Now, sometimes the present is heard as a little mysterious. But really, the present just means being physically, mentally, and emotionally all here together. I heard someone describing it recently when they're driving the car... They thought it was very helpful to have the body, the mind and the heart in the car. I thought it was a very nice way of saying it. Now the question is, how do we create this agitation? At the end of the Second World War, newspaper reporters wanted to know the reaction of a revered teacher, Swami Brahmananda Saraswati was his name, the reporters gathered around this guru and they wanted to know his views on the Second World War coming to an end. So if you can picture the scene, a lot of journalists sitting around this renowned guru and they wanted to hear his words of wisdom given that the war had just ended. So this is 1945. Now this is an extract from a much longer answer, but you'll get the sense of this. This is what he had to say. Real victory is that after which there can never be a reverse. Nobody can call himself a victor forever merely by crushing an external foe, because such foes can spring up again. A real victory is achieved by bringing under control the internal foes. A check over the internal enemy is therefore the only way of conquering the external enemies forever, because we should bear in mind that it is our internal enemies which create the external enemies. These inner enemies are ambition, anger, greed, false attachment, vanity and jealousy. It is this hexagon sitting inside us which makes a cat's paw of anything in the outer world in order to create enemies for us. Therefore, if anybody wants to enjoy peace and happiness through victory over all enemies, then he should raid the very source of all physical enemies, the subtle hexagon living in us. Destruction of enemies by root is not possible without breaking up this hexagon. It is a fact established by practical experience that anyone who has conquered these subtle inner enemies has broken up the central source of all external enemies. Therefore all enemies are nipped in the bud. Then he has no enemies left to be defeated. It is only such a victor who can be called a real victor. Then the gates of true and lasting peace and happiness are open for him. 
Now, I'm sure that's not what they were expecting as an answer. And it applied in 1945, and it applies today, that the, the difficulty is internal. It's not an external thing at all. So looking to solutions, first thing is to see that the difficulty is twofold. And the first aspect is we believe we can create peace through pursuing external things, creating particular circumstances. In our efforts, we misuse the mind and heart in a way that creates agitation. So that's the difficulty. The solution then has to be twofold. Firstly, we need to use mind and heart in a true way, which allows us to connect with the peace within, and this is a matter of practice. And secondly, we need to realize that peace cannot be created, and this is a matter of understanding. So what I propose is we look at four areas in how we use our minds in the way that we create agitation and then we'll do similar with the heart. But just before we look at the mind in some detail, the first thing to look at is the fundamental fuel for the mind. And the mind works best when it's still. And that's something that we could examine and actually make some endeavours with. There's so many times we respond to things by becoming active and agitated. You know, in hearing some crisis, quite often the first response is an agitated response. We must do something. We must start thinking very quickly. When the reverse is what's needed, the direct opposite. Like there's no such thing as a still, stupid mind. So stillness is the, is like the fundamental diet for the mind. Anything that we can practice that will bring the mind to rest is good for it. Brings the mind to stillness. Brings the mind to quietness. Now we're going to examine these four areas, and these are fairly common areas. The first one is making decisions. When faced with an important decision, a common tendency is to speculate about the consequences, wondering about the outcomes, how they will impact on me which agitates the mind. When the mind is agitated, we cannot tell right from wrong. And desires and aversions will win out despite an underlying sense of knowing that we may be doing the wrong thing. Decisions are then governed by agitation and confusion rather than reason. The need is to allow the mind to fall still. And rather than speculate on the consequences, it's to look at the nature of the decision you're making. Spend no time speculating on the consequences. The consequences can be anything. They can be anything you want to imagine. It's like when you're weighing up pros and cons and making a decision. You can have 20 pros and 21 cons, and tomorrow it can be 25 pros and 14 cons. And they can change, and you make the decision, and it can all change again after the decision is made. And it's because we're taken up with the consequences rather than looking at the decision itself. And by that we mean, is this a good decision? Is this a true decision? A right decision? 
And it's really to look and examine the, the fundamental of the decision rather than trying to imagine the outcome. One brings the mind to rest and allows you to sit with the decision. The other keeps you forever agitated. The second aspect is to examine all the false ideas about where we're going to find peace. And this will be very particular to each of us. These are habitual patterns of behaviour we think are going to provide peace. And we could find ourselves repeating them over and over again. Now Einstein said that this was the definition of insanity. To keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. So the idea is to examine everyday patterns of behaviour that do not bring peace, that have never brought peace, but that we keep doing, we keep engaging in them. Now I know this particular gentleman who he makes great efforts to get home in the evening time at a certain time. And he loves getting home at a certain time. And he opens a bottle of wine and he turns on the TV. And he sits down and he goes, great. And he has his glass of white wine and he has his TV. And he sits there like a vegetable, <laughs> enjoying what he calls his little rest at the end of the day. And every morning he chastises himself and criticizes himself for going through this little ritual and promises that he's going to crack this one day and he's going to change it and he's going to break the habit. But this is repeated day after day after day. And for some reason, on one side of it, it appears to be so attractive and on the other side, it's, it's not what he actually wants to do. All it does is create agitation. And we may each have certain behaviours or engage in certain company or meet certain people and it's not peaceful, it's anything but. And these should be examined. Now these patterns of behaviour are governed by habit and the force of habit is strong. And in fact habit plays a, a major part in how we do behave. Now there's a very useful tool when wanting to break habits. Would you like a useful tool for breaking habits? Now, at any moment in time, right now, and at any moment in time, we're faced with a choice of at least two things. If you take a simple example, like the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you're faced with a choice, aren't you? And the choice is, get out of bed or stay in bed. Which is the easy option? Stay in bed. So the hard option is get out. There's a, a very simple statement. When you're faced with these choices, this or this, the one that you regard as hard is the one to take. Whatever it is. So you're in the office and you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, uh, email or face-to-face. -face. Which is the easy option? Which is the hard one? Which should you do? That's it. Now, if you experiment with this, it is fascinating that the hard one is always the right one. 
And the easy one is always confirming the habitual route. So the more I take the easy options, the more I'm confirming these habitual patterns. So if you're interested in breaking habit in particular, it's a most useful tool. Go the hard route. That's the one. The one that you think is hard. Now, it's very particular to you because what you think is hard, I may not think is hard. So what one person deems easy and hard is very different from another person. But it's how you perceive it. So that's breaking habits, and we can discuss that again after tea if you like. The third area is just simply being present. As we touched on earlier, it's impossible to be at peace dwelling in the past and dwelling in the future, anticipating the future. But the only time we can be at peace is here now, so there's a need to practice that, practice being present, practice connecting. And this is a moment-by-moment -moment challenge. Just like we practiced earlier, that simple connection with the senses, just being present. And there are lots of opportunities in the day for that. There's lots of times where we have plenty of time. In fact, it's not even a time thing. You can be sitting at a computer desk or engaged in your work and be present. You can be out walking and be present, you're dragging the dog around the place while your head is full of angst. So just simply being present. The fourth area refers to attachment. And this really is the level of agitation that's caused by attaching ourselves to ideas, ways of doing things. We can identify and attach ourselves with anything. You could see it socially very easily where you're talking about a subject, might be politics or religion, and you become very attached to a particular view or a particular idea. And the level of agitation and angst that that can cause. And you can get quite worked up about some things. Dealing with the world calls for an intelligent response. An intelligent response to the people and events and circumstances. Now when we're attached to people and events and circumstances, we become unintelligent. Our powers of listening are taken away from us. Our powers of reasoning are taken away. And our powers to communicate are removed. The more attached, the more ignorant the behavior. And so instead of responding to things, we end up reacting. There's a challenging proposition in this, that reactions are never the right course of action. Reaction is always about me. Responding is always responding to the event, or to the person, or to the situation. But reacting is always from me. It's always about me. And when the mind is still and free from attachment, we respond then to the world in a measured way. So we've just addressed four areas from the point of view of the mind where we create agitation. One is decision-making. We go consequences and dwell on consequences instead of questioning the nature of the decision. Two, these patterns of behavior that don't really deliver peace but they continue in a habitual way. Three is the need for, to be present, whether we're active or inactive, to really connect and be present more often. 
And four is the one we've just mentioned, this becoming attached to ideas and people and ways of doing things. Now we have four areas concerning the heart. And again, these are where we create agitation. And the first one is relationships. The whole idea of relationship is to unite. To relate means to join, to connect, to unite. That's what relationship is for. That's what it's about. Now the idea is that we give up whatever is between us, whatever is not allowing that unity. So if I'm holding a position or I have a particular view on something, unless I let go that view or that position or that idea, there will be no unity in that relationship. So the need is to surrender or give up that which divides me from the other person. Otherwise the relationship is strained. Allow love and unity be the underlying basis for relationship, then we will have peace. Otherwise they're based on either attachment or possession, whose only fruit is agitation. Now, As we heard from that extract about the end of the war, peace with others starts with peace with ourselves. So the need is to surrender whatever it is that divides me from the other party. So it could be a criticism of them. It could be a judgment of myself. It could be a comparison. It could be a belief that they're doing things a different way and the wrong way. It could be an idea that they don't understand me. It could be any little notion about them. It could be some notion that they don't like me or I don't like them. And these are all little aspects which divide in the relationship. And where the relationship is divided, you have agitation of some form. The second area is honesty. We're going to look at this in three ways. Under the heading of speech, how we think and how we behave. When we speak a lie, the moment we speak a little white lie, in comes the agitation. And yet, the tendency to speak little white lies is quite high. There is that lovely statement from Shakespeare, what a tangled web we weave when first we begin to deceive. And that tangled web is all agitation, that's what it is. And if we've told three or four different lies to different people about the same subject, we have to have a fantastic memory, a file effect system to manage it all and keep it all filed properly. You nearly need a private secretary to manage this, to make sure you don't have stories that cross. So it gets very complicated. It's a curious thing, the amount of little white lies that we so-called engage with in the practical everyday world. Apparently innocent ones. You know, I'll be home in a minute. I'm an hour from home. The cheque is in the post. I haven't even looked at the blooming bill yet. You know, we say yes when we mean no, and no when we mean yes, and we yes, we'll come over for a weekend and for dinner, and we have no intentions of going near the place. We agree when we disagree. We sell our souls down some political ideal, and we would really prefer not to go down there, but we, we tell all sorts of little white lies. 
I mean, you could today find yourself saying it's a terrible day and it's a beautiful day within five minutes of each other. They're light-hearted enough, but if you examine them, there's quite a lot of just little white lies permeating our, our speech. Now, the best way to say something, we're making up excuses and speculating about how to phrase things. You know, if you have to address an issue, you could spend forever working out how you're going to say it and rehearsing what the person's going to say back and making up sort of excuses in one kind or another. When really the, the simplest way is just to try and speak truthfully. And the best part of speaking truthfully is it needs no rehearsal. You can't rehearse the truth. You don't need to rehearse it. So that's a very simple equation, this one. More truthful, more peaceful when it comes to speech. When we speak a lie, we know it's a lie. And that is why it causes so much agitation. If we didn't know it was a lie, it wouldn't cause any agitation. Because we know we're not being true to ourselves. Now, there's an interesting piece of information here. A doctor in America, I forget this man's name, I just remember reading this research. He had a number of patients, totaling about 80, who were all visiting him with some neurosis of some kind. So he decided he'd do some research. He wanted to see, was there any common denominator among these patients? And he discovered something very interesting. He discovered that they were all married. I think they were all men. <laughs> I might have that wrong now, just in case you get carried away. <laughs> but they were all married. And... He also discovered that every one of them was having an affair. And he concluded that the cause, the underlying cause of their neurosis and why they were all coming to him for the, the medical treatment was the constant living this particular lie. That they're his conclusions. I can't speak from experience. I'm very happily married Man, and I'm not having any affairs. <laughs> so the need is to speak truthfully, practice speaking the truth pleasantly, but to make it truthful rather than all the little white lies that we weave in and out of. Those truth pleasantly rather than the polite, pleasant untruth. So that's speech. The same occurs when we think in opposition to how we know we should think. So we can think in a dishonest way. That causes agitation and guilt and all sorts of other things. So example would be having a critical view of someone and constantly having this critical view. That, that can be wearing on you and it creates agitation. So it's like dishonest thinking. It's thinking in a way that we know we shouldn't. And more obviously then, when we act against what we know to be true, something we know is inappropriate. And an obvious example might be someone might take a couple of drinks and they know it's not right to drive, but then they get into the car and drive. That's behaving against what they know to be the right way to behave. 
And even in these small little trivial things, acting against what we know is the right way to behave brings a lot of agitation, a lot of difficulty. The need is to be the same on the inside and the outside. No division between what we say, what we think, and how we behave. It's like it's really being true to yourself, speaking like you really would know you should speak, think like you know you should, act like you know you should. And if we can't do that, there will always be agitation. If we're going against what we know we should, it will always bring agitation. And a lot of these little white lies are to please people, which is ironic. <laughs> you know, we don't offend them. So we're trying to please people and keep everyone happy and keep everything looking okay, so we tell all sorts of little lies towards that end. Number three is negative feelings. Consider the amount of time spent entertaining negative feelings. In particular, how often do we take offence and then dwell on that? And unfortunately, whatever we attend to grows. So if you've taken offence and you decide to nurse it and manage it and look after it, it will grow. And it may appear very obvious, but if we're nursing negative feelings like taking offence, there can be nothing but agitation. And th that term, nursing offence, is a good term. You know, it's kind of caring for it and minding it and put, we put it away sometimes and we take it out again and make sure it hasn't gone too far and look, look at it when we're on our own and bring it out with a cup of tea. And You know, it's kind of nursing an offence. It's kind of like a pal. Now, nursing offences like this, it doesn't just cause immediate trouble, it stores up trouble for the future. I'm never sure who said this, but some famous actress, I think, said, nursing offence or taking offence is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> Consider the amount of time we spend dwelling on negative feelings, entertaining them, mulling over them, filing them away in our filing cabinets under different categories. It's like having a house full of people not paying rent. <laughs> now we need to apply reason, not suppression, not expression. So we can't deal with negativity by suppressing it or expressing it. Or indeed practicing restraint, pretending they're not there. So we need to apply reason. And the reason is, who is the beneficiary of this feeling? Who is benefiting from this misery, this negativity? You know, you could take offence from the way someone looks at you one day. And they know nothing about this. It's all on your own. Creating a, quite a miserable world all by yourself. Like if I asked you to, um, just hands up the people in this room who have ever intentionally set out to cause offence to people. <laughs> oh, 
That's good. That's the answer to the first question. <laughs> There's always one. Now, now, hands up the people in this room who, who could, they might, take offence before the day is out. It's possible. Might, maybe, don't push me. <laughs> could, it's a possibility. Now, Now, what's that tell you? Offence is something that's taken. We take it. We decide that how you look at me is offensive. There's very, very few. Now, there may be exceptions, but there are very few people in the world out there setting out to cause us offence. But we could all become offended and agitated and miserable because of the way someone speaks to us, the way they look at us, the way they behave with us, how they instruct us, etc., etc. It must be very funny. If you could imagine the whole country being asked that question and no one putting their hand up for the first and everyone putting their hand up for the second one. No one's causing it, but we're all taking it. Now, it's very sobering to just consider that you know, people, by and large, don't set out to cause us all the hassle that we imagine they're causing us. So if we cause difficulty for others, we should be first to apologize. And if someone else causes difficulty for us, we should be quick to forgive. And both of those will bring great peace and great rest to you. So not taking offence in the first place, then being first to apologise and quick to forgive. We can't connect with peace while dwelling on negativity or while being stubborn. I'm not going to apologise until he does or she does. These are preventing us from enjoying the peace. Now the last of these areas, we're just still in the area of the heart, is acceptance. And immediate peace comes from acceptance of what is. Where you have resistance to what's actually happening, you have agitation. So a simple example is if you resist the weather, it'll still be raining and you'll be agitated. If you accept the weather, it'll still be raining and you'll be at peace. But it'll still be raining. You see, it's resistance to what's actually happening is the cause of the difficulty. And that's the unreasonable part, if you consider that things are actually unfolding as they're unfolding. All resistance does is create agitation in us, and we have to try and meet the event anyway. So resistance does not alter the event, it just renders us incapable of responding. The practice in this regard is simply to accept the person or accept the event fully. Let go of the negativity and get on with dealing with the actual facts of the matter or get on with whatever is actually happening. If it's something trivial like the weather or if it's something more serious, there will be some facts to deal with, there will be something to attend to and get on with. In addition, we could practice welcoming the situations of life, welcoming the events of life. 
instead of resisting them. So now we have four areas concerning the heart. We have relationships, that is letting go whatever it is that's dividing us. We have honesty, which is about honesty in speech, honesty in how we think, and honesty in how we act. And in its simplistic term, that's really speaking and thinking and acting like you really know you should and could and would want to. We have this whole business of nursing offence and taking offence. And that's a serious one because you could take offence and go on for weeks and nobody may know about it except you. The so-called offender, the perpetrator, might have no knowledge. And the last one there is talking about this business of accepting, being more accepting of life's events. All the small and the trivial and the, the more serious. Apart from these four, there is a primary practice every day, and that is as often as we remember to simply connect with the peace that is within, this ever-present and ever-available peace. If we practice this, the day will come when we will enjoy that permanent and limitless peace that the wise speak of. And note the wise are enjoying that peace whether active or inactive. We can also turn to the instruction manual, if all else fails. And the scriptures are the instruction manual, and they provide the wisdom to guide us in how to live truly, happily and fully. Now the wise have told us that the peace is ever available, so we could start there. This peace is always available, and if I'm not experiencing it, I must be doing something wrong. I must be making a mistake. So right now, if I'm not experiencing peace, I must be making some mistake. That's a simple inquiry that you could continue with. Now, where are we going to get the energy to do all this? In the Bhagavad Gita, there is the following statement. There is no wisdom to the unsteady, and no meditation to the unsteady. Without meditation there can be no peace, and without peace there can be no happiness. That's like an instruction to meditate if you really want and are serious about connecting with that peace. Meditation becomes an important piece or an important aspect. Meditation that's spoken of here is simple and it's the most effective method of bringing the mind to stillness. It's also a practical tool which dissolves all the tendencies in our behaviour. So the way we behave, especially the habitual ingrained, I heard a man calling it today, the way we're hardwired. To actually address that, I don't know anything more magnificent and simple than meditation. Meditation allows us to connect with our true nature, which is permanent, limitless, and ever-present peace. Jesus said, when the two become one, then we shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The wise are one, and they live in this kingdom all the time. We are multiple, or divided against ourselves, 
And that's what prevents us enjoying peace. We often express a wish for peace in the world. However, if we're at war with ourselves, we cannot bring peace to anyone. Not to our family, not to our friends, not to our neighbours. So for ourselves and the world, it is important to uncover this peace which is within. And so, to finish. We need to appreciate that the peace is ever-present, that it is here now, always, it cannot be created, but it can be connected with and enjoyed fully. As we heard earlier, the enemy is within, this hexagon living within. Lasting peace is not found by changing other people or changing external events, but by dissolving this hexagon within. The practices outlined and the study and application of the words of Scripture and meditation will make the experience of this true peace possible for all of us. Then, in the words of Jesus, our lives will be pervaded by that peace which passeth all understanding. And I hope that you and I discover this true and lasting peace. Thank you. So, it's really over to you now to, to raise any questions or any aspect of... Uh, you spoke about um, a problem, we say that um, to use reason um, when dealing with problems. Traditionally, we, you know, I've often heard, is a problem shared, does a problem have? How do you sort of equate, you know, that we'll say my person speaks about it? Surely it would be it's as, as beneficial as using reason. Yes, well, what, you're, what you're actually doing is you're availing of the reason of the other person. Or by speaking of it, you can create a little space, a little a sense of detachment, which allows you to see things more clearly. But it, it is important, if you're speaking to someone about problems, that you are, that you are speaking with the intention of solving them not just with the intention of spreading your woe all over the land. So, this idea of sharing problems can be grossly misused and people can spend all their day talking about their problems to everybody. And in fact, they can be going around the place telling the same problem to everybody, waiting until they hear a piece of advice that fits in what they think in the first place. So. That idea of sharing a problem can be very useful. If you, if, you, if you can't see clearly yourself in particular, it can be very useful just to present it to somebody else. With the proviso that you are trying to sort it out, not trying to just spread your woe everywhere. Do you recognize the difference between just talking about your problems and looking for a little support committee maybe or a canteen committee or some little group to form around you and talk about it and nurses and help you wallow in the negativity. But certainly, speaking to another can be extremely useful. 
it's also useful to seek your counsel wisely. You know, if you're going to share a problem with someone, it's to seek counsel with someone you know is going to speak truthfully and advise you wisely and not just help you to stew in the, in the difficulty. Does that make sense? Yes. Sometimes we could be quick to share the difficulty, but the person we won't speak to is that person over there, because we know they'll, they may tell us a truth that we don't want to hear. Ficino, actually, who I referred to in the talk, he said, whenever you seek counsel, make sure it's with someone who will advise you of the best, not advise you of what pleases you. And it can be very useful. In fact, it can be extremely useful to present problems or things you're thinking of doing to someone you regard as wise and get their view. It could save us a lot of trouble, actually. Is that okay? Uh, I'd like to refer back to the question of taking offence right. and the timing of how one deals with it. I've figured out from what you were saying that and from my own experience, that people take offence, or I would take offence maybe when somebody is in an agitated situation and they maybe quite often unintentionally offend me. Yes. And then I've got the problem of how I deal with it. Yeah. Now, some people have accused me in the past and sometimes of not dealing with it and leaving it, and then I think it, it builds a certain anger or resentment in you if, even if it's a small thing and you don't resolve the issue with the person involved. So I'm just looking at, you know, what's your advice in terms of how soon we should attempt to resolve the anger that's in us mm. at somebody giving us offence, sometimes even unintentionally. Yeah, very good. See, the difficulty is that most offence, if not nearly all offence, is caused unintentionally. Like if I were to ask people in this room, hands up those in the room, now, if you've ever set out in the morning intentionally going to cause offence to people, look around you. There's no hands up. So the, the very first thing is, it's interesting that we use the word take offence. We decide that it's offensive and we take it. And we, we take it on board and we nurse the feeling. We feel the victim of something and we nurse it and we think about it. Now, the so-called perpetrator may be totally unaware of all this going on, but we're by ourselves doing this. And we could carry it around for days, couldn't we? In fact, you can nurse an offence for years. Someone said something three years ago at some function you were at. It's a spot, firstly, that we do actually, we take offence, and it, that's a significant and important point to see at the beginning. So, in terms of dealing with it, then, it's, it's up to us to not do that, to not take offence, to let go of the offence, let go of the negativity, let go of the, that feeling of anger you're talking about. Like, when we're experiencing that anger, we're literally cutting ourselves off from any possibility of peace, happiness, composure, confidence, cutting oneself off from simply just being true to oneself and simply dwelling on negativity and stirring it up and nursing it and minding it. 
remember the so-called perpetrator has no knowledge of all this. Like I could have caused offence here this evening, I don't know. Could be someone in the audience seething. Mm -hmm. I haven't the foggiest notion. Yes. So that's the first piece to see, and it's it's a letting go process here. Now, so when you say deal with it, that's really the only dealing with it, if that makes sense. Okay. However. There are times, you know those times where we, are, we behave and we know the behavior is inappropriate. Do you recognize that? You say a remark and you know it's not the right thing. Now at the time you're saying it, you may be unaware, but the moment you say it, you realize, uh-oh, not a nice thing to have said, wrong, very offensive. That's where you apologize immediately. So it's to be first to apologize. That's the rule. So it's first to apologize, and when you see someone else behaving like that, it's to be quick to forgive. So now we have three ways, three aspects to it. One is to let go, realize that we take offense and let go of that negativity. Be quick to forgive the so-called perpetrator and then be first to apologize when we are in that role. Does that make sense? Does, yes. I still wonder though, I think there are people who feel that, you know, sometimes the offender should have copped on, or should have realized they gave offense, and they feel they have a grudge against them simply because they feel that person doesn't realize the error of their way, so to speak. Yeah. You know? And that, do I have a duty to raise the issue with the person? It depends on your relationship with them. So if you're the father of children and they're behaving in a very unruly manner, then you have a certain responsibility and duty of care to them. It just depends on the relationship. But if you go around to Lee tomorrow pointing out the error of everybody's ways, you could end up in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> the real difficulty is, if you think back to that statement, from the guru about the Second World War. The real enemy is inside. Like the enemy is inside all the time. You know, if you just picture, imagine a saint and someone saying something offensive to them. What would happen? Nothing would happen. There would be no effect. That is available to us all. That aspect of peace and contentment and steadfastness and being unaffected is available to every one of us. And it takes a practice and it takes a shift in understanding. Thank you. Can I just ask you, just when that issue came up there, sometimes one finds oneself in, uh, within a group of people and the group can be extremely critical, yeah. perhaps of another person or the institution or whatever. And you don't want to be drawn into it. You don't want, you know, when you were talking about that whole idea of negative feeling, okay? And it's difficult to walk away or you're seen, you say, in a workplace or whatever as being, you know, kind of you know, uh, odd or strange or whatever, yeah. if you remove yourself. And at times, especially when people get tired at work and whatever, you, that seeps in a lot, I yeah. think. And I'm just wondering, what's the best way of, say, handling something like that yeah. for oneself? The kind of the critical canteen committee. Exactly. Type, I'm trying to yes. Well, 
it is challenging, but it's interesting that people unite under any banner. So that's what's actually happening. They're uniting, they're coming together under a negative flag, which is a critical flag. And there's a certain perverted type of camaraderie happens in that situation, but it's very negative and quite destructive. So the first thing, when you're in a group in particular, is to not join the criticism, not take part in the criticism at the institution and the MD and the whatever it is that's happening. But then you can't engage in criticism yourself of them. Do you recognize that? Yes, this is it. So you can't, you can't join them with the criticism and you can't engage in criticism of how terrible they are because you're just doing the same as they are. So the idea is just to be quiet and listen and seek your opportunity to raise the conversation up. What often happens is quite startling if you just listen. You know, when we're sitting here discussing it, it appears like, a, how, could I, how could I do that? And yet, if you're actually in the situation, you just listen, something very surprising might come out of your mouth. You might be surprised what you say. If you're critical of the group, you, won't, you, you lose that capacity, that sense of innovation or creativity or spontaneity won't come. You know, you're standing there quiet but critical. It's not, very, it's not a useful state to be in. So you might just say something. You might say, come on, it's not that bad. It might be something very simple. Or it could be a serious point. You might actually make a serious point. You might say, look, every time we meet, you criticize the institution. Why don't we stop? You might actually say something very strong. But if you're standing in a circle quietly criticizing them for their behavior, nothing much will happen. It just remains quite clogged mm. up. So it's to listen and then seek to raise the conversation upwards. You can often ask a question. is often a very simple way of changing things. You know, if you're telling people, if you decide to tell people you shouldn't be criticizing, that can set up a, a difficulty. But why, why do we criticize the institution all the time? Is a, a softer way of doing things. You ask a question instead of launching it with a, with a direction. My son recently was suspended from school for misbehavior, you see, which meant he was staying at home for the day. And in my mind was, I hope he's not going to be sitting there watching TV. I'm wondering what Valerie is going to do with him for the day. I was concerned that he wasn't just colouring in books or something. I was hoping there'd be a bit of a regime with a sort of a punishment tag on it a bit, given that he was suspended. So I had in me all this stuff, you see. So I went to Valerie, and just before I spoke, I decided to ask a question instead. So I said, what are you going to do with him for the day? You see? So, I had enough material in me that would fill that flip chart, <laughs> right? But I was just, it was just good fortune, just ask a question instead, you see? And she said, oh yes, I've been thinking about this. She said, I'm going to make this quite a severe day so he doesn't do this again. I'm going to make sure he does this and this and this and that and the other. And she, I said, fantastic, enough of <laughs> Now, do you see the difference? 
So one would be me launching from my pad of high horse, possibly concerned daddy, and etc., etc. But it could have been me dictating and telling and uh, saying how things should be and shouldn't be, etc., etc. Whereas a simple question allowed my wife to say what she was going to do, which was even better than I had in mind. So, thank you. Is that helpful? But the, the interesting part about this is. And I've experienced this. You're in a group and there's a number criticizing, and that's exactly what you're doing. Do you recognize that? You're saying, how disgraceful they are. <laughs> God, this is just disgusting. They can't say anything decent about it. And you're doing exactly what they're doing. Just quietly, that's all. You're just standing there with your face quiet. <laughs> so to spot that. What we were saying earlier on here. If we're critical of somebody or a group, we don't know what to do. You won't know what action to take. Because the criticism takes away that capacity from you. So you're left, I don't know what to do here. So it's to stop the criticism and then see what, see what ways there are and means to lift it upwards. Um, you were talking about uh, attachment yes. to something and feeling the need to defend the attachment. Is there a difference between having a right to an opinion and that, you know, does the aggravation only come when you try to force your opinion on someone else or your view on someone else? Like if I was to say to someone, practical philosophy is great and it really works for me, yes. and they were to say, no, it's a load of rubbish. <coughs> yes. Am I defending an attachment then or am I just having a right to my opinion? Well. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. It would be very boring if we all had the same opinions, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. So we need all that lovely variety of opinion and views, etc. The problem is where we identify with and become attached to the opinion. So let's say your opinion, which is a, a noble opinion, the study of philosophy is a very good idea, yes? Mm -hmm. The difficulty is the, is the attachment to it, locking on to it. How you know you're attached is by the tension and the agitation it creates. You mean the tension if someone else doesn't Balance, agree? Yes. Yes, right. So it's, to be able to express an opinion is fine. Noble opinion as it is is fine. But to claim it and latch onto it and become attached to it means that you can't actually hear anything else. Right. You're, you're actually closing down the possibility of even discussing the opinion. But what happens is you would recognize attention in yourself when it's challenged. Right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. It's like you spoke of saints there. Yeah. They obviously hold a very confident and strong belief. Yeah. And they don't deter from it. So are they, is it an attachment? No. No. No, they're just themselves. So is it if, if you hold the opinion and someone challenging it doesn't raise any tension in you? Yes. Then it's not an attachment, That's it's right. the right path, if you like. Well, it may or may not be the right path. Mm -hmm. The opinion may need scrutiny or examination. That's another subject in a way. Mm -hmm. Just the attachment to it is, is where we become so fixated with some idea or some view that we, we can neither discuss it with someone or we can't see any alternative, or we can't listen to someone else talking or expressing an opposing view. Right. Do you know when people are, they say, let's, let's discuss something and let's have an open mind on it? 
and there's nobody open and something's expressed and then you express your view and they express their view and it's like table tennis mm -hmm. and it's like a sort of a, a platform of activity or participation but it's not really a genuine inquiry it's not a spirit of inquiry it's not a good discussion you know, when people talk sometimes, then they say things like, oh, I was in Spain on holidays, <coughs> and before they even finish their sentence, you're saying, yeah, I was there too. You know, it's like table tennis. It's not really a genuine inquiry. Mm -hmm. So people are just attached to views and opinions. They're expressing them, and then, they, and then the other person's expressing theirs, and it goes back and forward like that. Mm -hmm. For that to change, you've got to be able to loosen up that attachment. <laughs> The idea of studying philosophy is a noble idea. It's not that nothing's going to happen to that idea. Mm -hmm. You don't have to latch on to it and defend it to the death. Mm -hmm. You could find that the less attached, the more genuine a conversation you would have with the person about the subject. Mm -hmm. But the study of philosophy is the study of wisdom. Mm -hmm. The study of wisdom is that body of knowledge that's supposed to make you free so becoming att attached <laughs> and angry and annoyed about the very subject that's supposed to make you free sounds mm -hmm. interesting, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were saying at this point, when our peace is gone, people, places and things we allow to aggravate us. And it's, you're saying to let go, mm. you know, and accept in the mm. moment this is the way things are. Mm. But isn't there another side to the wisdom of the courage to change certain things in your life as well? And mm. Do you have to forfeit your peace to do that, or how do you peacefully mm. go about doing that? No, very good. You see, it's, it's not accept the situation and lie down and uh, go to sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just to accept the situations that we find ourselves in fully, and then respond to them fully, whatever that means. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So it's acceptance of the situation and allow the response to be full to that situation, whatever that is. Yes, whether it's to accept it or change it. Well, it's no, it's to take corrective action. Mm -hmm. You may have to take action of some kind, mm -hmm. and very serious action in some situations. But it's, it's action taken, it's responding to events rather than reacting. Yes. If you don't accept the event, you're reacting. If you accept the situation, you're then in a position to respond intelligently and appropriately to the situation. There's lots of little examples, but there's one story. Uh, a man in the school is catching a flight from Dublin Airport, and he's going to New York. His visa was in another passport. And the girl behind the desk told him he wasn't traveling anywhere. And he got very hot, very bothered, and there was steam coming out of his ears, and he was explaining how important he was, and how important it was that he had to go to New York. There were meetings set up, etc., 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 you see. So that's just non-acceptance of the situation. So what you have with non-acceptance is an unreasonable human being jumping around an airport with smoke coming out of his ears. Mm -hmm. Now, he's not going on a plane anyway. Now, he said the girl was very good. When he was expressing this. She was just standing there looking at him. And when he stopped for a brief moment, she said, Sir, I can put you on the airplane, but the Americans won't let you out. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and he said it was from then on, he accepted the situation and he suddenly became a reasonable human being. Now, you still have to make the phone calls, get the passport from home sent out, rearrange the flights, you still have to do all that work. But the difference is acceptance makes you a reasonable human being. So it's accept and respond fully. Thank you. Hi, my question is on the same thing, the offence. Just, uh, I was just curious, I, I don't seem to get angry but if offence is taken, but my sort of happiness is gone for the day and I'm just so... And I'm, I'm just wondering what my kind of reaction, that, that awful sadness or flatness. Yeah. I know it's only temporary, it's going to be gone in a couple of hours' time, but if I could get a, a technique or something that would stop me even for a few hours feeling that... I don't, as opposed to angry when, of, when, yeah. I, when somebody offends me, I just get, uh, what's the word, depleted, sad, sad, depleted, that's yeah. the word actually, yeah. And how long did you do this for? Uh, how long would that last for? Yeah. Uh, you're doing other things and you're busy, it's not that you're sitting there modeling, you're actually busy or yeah. at work or whatever. Uh, I suppose it just puts that kind of a tone on, on the, the day or the couple yeah. of hours, you know. Yeah. Uh, in a way, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's what we're talking about. The particular manifestation of views is sort of a depleted sadness. With someone else, it's irritation and frustration. With someone else, it's seething anger. But it is the same thing. There is a choosing. Like, misery is voluntary. Misery is voluntary. We choose it. It's, we take the offence. We dwell on it and swim around in there and nurse it and maintain it and manage it and keep it and, and we, we keep it for a few hours. And it's like keeping company with something very miserable for a few hours. Like the so-called perpetrator may have no knowledge of this. Right, but how, to answer the question, how do you divert it? It's to let go. It's to really apply reason to the situation, it's to see what we're doing. If somebody says something, we decide that it's offensive and we become negative and miserable and we nurse this for two or three hours. That has to come under the microscope. Even if you can see well, what they said, you could, I could reason with them and see uh, it was right or it was wrong. I, could, I, could, I can could reason, but it wouldn't stop you feeling. No, what's being meant when we refer to reason is to actually let the light of reason shine on your, on your behaviour <coughs> to see the folly of it. But you realize that someday somebody could say something to you that causes offense. Another day, the same person could say the same thing to you and you don't even hear it. No, this type of offense, you, this was shouting and this is like, you would have to be offended, you know, it wasn't. You couldn't mistake it for being inoffensive, do you know what I mean? Right. Somebody is angry. You know. Well, it's the same process. When you say, how do you deal with it? What would you think you should be doing? Uh, well, I know, of course, uh, uh, listening to all the things about the whole idea is not to take it on board. I, I thoroughly believe absolutely that's absolutely And I could counsel somebody else to say, don't, don't let it get you or whatever. Yeah. But it's still somehow, oh, it's short term, it, it's depletion is what I yeah, do. Yeah, I understand, yeah. yeah. Uh, only short term, now. <laughs> not, not forever, mm -hmm. but I'd just love if I could have a technique to be able to. Who is the beneficiary of this negative feeling? Beneficiary doing well from it, is it? Yeah. No, nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Well, yeah. ask yourself that question every time you feel negative. Who is the beneficiary of this negative feeling? 
Well, is that the answer? Why are you stewing around in there? I wish I had the answer. Yeah, I don't know why. Okay. I wish I wasn't, you know. But who is the beneficiary? There's your technique. Ask yourself, who is the beneficiary of this negative feeling every time? And if the answer is nobody, why would you hang around there? No, I don't want to be there. <laughs> well? Yeah, how do you know that? Well, you're in charge. There was a lovely, very unphilosophical approach one time. This man said to me he found a perfect antidote for negative feeling. And I said, what was it? And he said, next. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a very light-hearted approach to that. It was very true. The way he said it was fantastic. Next. It was brilliant. See, who is the beneficiary? of the negative feeling is you're trying to bring reason to bear to the situation. The way you're saying it is there's this negativity, there's this depletion and sadness and it goes on for a few hours and I'd like to I'd like a little way of stopping. Well if I said to you that I carry a bag of rubbish around me every day. Let's say I'm telling you I carry this bag of rubbish with me every day. Black sack full of our yogurt and chicken wings and all sorts of junk in there. And I bring it with me everywhere. And it's irritating, irritating me terribly. I hate it. I mean, I carry it with me everywhere. What would you tell me to do? But what? No, no, I find it very hard. Oh, it's very hard. And it, and it weighs me down, depletes me. And it's full of a muck. What would you say to me? No, but it's very difficult. I want a technique. <laughs> no, seriously, I need a technique. Come on. I've come the whole way from Dublin here. I want a technique. <laughs> what are you going to tell me to do? Yeah, I want a technique for getting rid of this black sack full of rubbish, which I carry around me all day. In that case, it's just open your hand. And, thank you. <laughs> thank you, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly it. You can say, how do you let go? <laughs> Right. Forgive me for this. Yes, I think you might just answer there and said try and have a sense of humour about it, you know. No, no, I've got my black bag rubbish. Right? You didn't tell me how to let go. How am I going to let go of the black bag rubbish? Well, if you say open your hand and... Yeah, but how? It's a silly question in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Because letting go is just a hard thing. It's just letting go. There is not, in a way, there's not a technique, in a way. Well, what job do you prefer to see how it feels? You could try that. <laughs> and if you're not happy, pick it back up again. <laughs> you can question who the beneficiary is, which would be one way. Practice letting go of this. Practice in the smallest, simplest of ways. The black bag of rubbish approach. But then if somebody yells and shouts at you, yeah. I mean, you would have to be... I mean, any sensitive thing you person, I think, yeah, you would as an adult especially. You're not used to any of these shouting in the wall. No, it's not good. No, I'm actually talking about work situation, and, and it is a real, it is, and I can completely uh, rationalise it too. And I know it's not like it's a major problem in my life or anything like that. But it's sometimes, gosh, I, I wish that just didn't put a damper. There may be an opportunity to speak about it. It depends on the, the relationship at work. You know, sometimes the, the so-called perpetrator is unaware of all this. Yeah. Oh, I could say so. Yeah. So, 
But the first thing is to let go from our side of the equation as such. If there is reason to speak or address the situation, well, then that might present itself. Is that right? Obviously, it's important that there should be peace politically, too, peace in the world. And peace, peace obviously, is a very broad concept. But the question, anyhow, is if there were more women in charge of the world, would there be more peace? <laughs> would, there, would there be more peace in the world if there were more women in charge? No. <laughs> Definitely not. The peace of yourself and the peace that are, is referred to by the Shankaracharya and any of those scriptures that I referred to is beyond gender. So it is the peace of your true self which is beyond mind, beyond body, beyond the heart. There's a quotation in scripture, I'm not exactly sure where it's from, but it, it does refer to the peace that passeth all understanding. And the instrument of understanding is your mind and heart. So whatever this peace is that we're seeking on one hand and is available on the other, it's beyond the mind, the heart and the body. So therefore it is beyond gender. So if you like, a serious look at that question would have you looking at the real pieces beyond gender. And it will be brought to the world by whomever has access to that peace. Men and women alike. There's no restriction. For someone to bring peace, real peace to the world, they would have to have access to that peace. But I suppose my question, Brian, really is that the men, why I raised it was, the men haven't done a great job in bringing peace to the world, you know, politically. You know, war is a continual reality, and still even today, thank God we're at peace here in, this, in, in Ireland, but hopefully uh, it, it will last. But, you know, throughout the world there's so many areas of conflict. And I think that, you know, human nature being what it is, that if there was a better mix, this is my view, if there was a better mix of men and women in charge of the world in various, in, in different ways. Mm. I think that there would be more peace. Well, when, you look, when you look back, for instance, sorry, just the last point, say the First World War, you know, it was, it was all run by men, and, and it was just a crazy experience for Europe and the world. And I think women have a lot to contribute, but I think that there, there would be more peace in the world. And probably in their own country, if, if women, the more women were in charge, and there was a better mix in leadership. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Um, healthy confrontational, is that possible? What I mean by that is I, I have a work situation whereby, for the last eight months, I've sort of had confrontation with my boss in the sense of he's given me a role to do, but I just feel he's not giving me the space to do it. He's not allowing me to use my expertise except in that area. And I'm just finding it very difficult to sort of progress or improve the situation, you know what I mean? So in other words, we are in sort of a confrontational mode, but I'm just wondering, is there sort of a concept of healthy confrontation, if you know what I mean? I'm not too sure if it's healthy or unhealthy, but certainly everyone knows what confrontation is like. I mean, quite often, the simple speaking about the situation could help enormously. Just going to speak to your boss and explaining that you've been given a job without responsibility, if that is the case. So you could 
experiment with speaking truthfully about what's actually going on. A lot of conflict on the surface is because of an underlying criticism underneath. So you could find that there's a criticism underneath between you and your boss that keeps that confrontational atmosphere between the two. Okay, I'm not sure if you've spoken about it. No, I have spoken to him. He knows my feelings. I mean, I suppose my situation is I have a certain expertise that he's asked me to sort of utilize in the position and I just feel that he's not really taking on board what I'm saying and it can get just very frustrating for me because it just leaves me to act out of character in a sense um, because of the frustration that I'm experiencing. And I'm just wondering what other approach is there to try to get my point across and get him to take on board what I'm trying to say, if you know what I mean. Well, what we spoke of in the talk there earlier was in relationships, any relationship, business or otherwise, the key to the relationship is unity. What stops the unity is the position. So if I have a position and you have a position and I insist on holding my position, there will be a disharmony, there will be division. Now this may sound very like a very courageous thing, but the key is to surrender and to give up your position. Whatever that is, whether you think your expertise is, is or is not being used, to actually be able to surrender that fully and seek to actually create a unity between the parties and then see what arises. If I hold on to a position, it actually maintains the position in the other party. So on surrendering my position, there's the possibility for unity and where you have unity then something different will happen. Does that make sense? No, no, it does make sense I suppose, but it's just that it's difficult in the sense because what they've done in the past I just think is so bad in, in terms of particular aspect of their business and I think he realizes this but he just won't do fundamental things to try and improve the situation like you know it's, it's very simple stuff like it's writing stuff down making sure people have you know clear ideas about what their work they're doing all this other thing and I suppose I know what you're saying in terms of me and my surrendering my position but if I feel genuinely that I'm right in the sense, if you know what I mean, and I'm trying to be objective about it, you, you see that as a problem. You see, I'm feeling I'm right about it is the position. That is the position. If you surrender that and discuss the situation in the interest of the company, that's very different than holding on to a position and trying to argue from a position of what me thinks is right and what me thinks me wants, etc. So it's to somehow surrender the position and act in the interest of the bigger picture, the company in the case that you're referring to there, or it could be in the interest of the family, could be in the interest of the marriage. But while we hold positions and we're attached to them, it's very difficult. We can't see clearly, we can't think clearly. It's very difficult to see another person's point of view. But the magic in surrendering your position is that our positions hold the other position in place. You're supposed to be thinking, that is fantastic. <laughs> no, it is absolutely <clears throat> No, no, I do see where you're coming from because it has got less conf confrontational and actually it's working better in a sense. Um, it's still sort of frustrating. See, it's really. fixing already. <laughs> hmm.
you said that if it is a case you procrastinate or delay with a task, it causes increased agitation. Well, what if you felt you were holding a stronger standpoint or you wouldn't be realistic if you dealt with a situation now and you put it off um, until the following week till you felt you could stand back from it and be more realistic and deal with the situation in a better way, business-wise or otherwise? Is it still regarded as procrastination? Does it still uh, increase agitation? You know, from a timing point of view, if you're putting aside something that needs attending to, and it's not procrastinating, it, there will be, there'll be no agitation. Right. Agitation is the hallmark of procrastinating. That's how you know it's procrastination. There's something that needs to be done, and you say, not now, I don't feel well. He doesn't feel well. But if you're putting it off for a different reason, then that's acceptable. Oh, absolutely. They, oh, yes, there's timing. Everything has timing attached to it. And there's a suitable time for everything. But when you're putting something off that needs to be done right now, the outcome is agitation. If Perfect. it didn't need to be done, it, it wouldn't cause the agitation. Okay. We don't find ourselves agitated about where we're going to go on holidays in the year 2008. Because it doesn't need any attention. But the things you're putting off today that you should have attended to is causing agitation, isn't it? Yeah. That's its very hallmark. And it's an extraordinary thing that we keep doing that every week in, week out. There is this putting off of work, there's the agitation, and there's the repeat performance week in, week out. Isn't there? So what you're saying is to uh, stop this agitation if, okay, it exists, say, in day-to-day -day lives where you're putting off a task for whatever reason, be it excused or otherwise, the key to that is meditation. There's two elements to it. One is meditation is the main practice for bringing the mind to rest and bringing the mind to stillness. But you could work with just addressing needs when they arise, attending to what needs to be done when it needs to be done. That's just as effective, is that what you're saying? Well, that would be how you'd practice it. Okay. So in terms of if you wanted to practice something tonight and tomorrow morning, whatever the need is, attend to that fully. Meditation will help bring stillness to the mind and it will help you to remember such a practice. Is, is there such a thing as meditation helping you find the solution? If you're Indi unsure which way to go? Indirectly, meditation is very useful for finding solutions, but that's not why you would meditate. Oh, yeah. Meditation brings the mind and the heart to rest. And when mind and heart are at rest, solutions yes, are easier found. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I'm just wondering, Brian, how must the British have felt when Gandhi was making peaceful protest? Mm. Was his peaceful protest not provocation at the same time, therefore not bringing about peace? I'm just recalling a situation where I was dealing with somebody, and they were so calm and peaceful and lacking in any agitation or... I was becoming more and more agitated because they were so calm. Very good. <laughs> and I felt you were provoking me. <laughs> now, that's a better question than the first one. <laughs> and glad we moved from India back to the Bank of Ireland Art Centre. 
I thought candy would be more important than no, I... No, no, no. <laughs> you see, it is interesting. True peace would bring peace. And it would be accompanied by compassion and truthfulness. That type of peace that provokes a negative response, we all know, don't we? When the other person's losing their reason and we're standing there kind of <laughs> smug and we're looking at the person who's getting more and more upset and we're thinking, you stupid idiot. <laughs> but outwardly we look, we look okay and we look quite quiet and we look innocent in the whole event. But we are very naughty. So that's a kind of a smugness. It's, it's like a quietness accompanied by a criticism. It's not really peace. Like true peace would be full of compassion for the person and it would have a different sound and a different flavour. And the other person would feel it. Whereas that standoffish, smug-like state is a, is a different business altogether. Do you recognise it? <laughs> Passive aggression. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Gandhi was practicing, I think, I hope I have this right, what he called ahimsa, which is a, a harmlessness, harm nothing. I think it was very effective. One of the girls in our class, a very successful outlay from in her position, in her job, and she put it down to doing the exercise that she uh, was made easy with mm. saying what she had to say. She explained how she began not to carry the job around with her. She herself wasn't delighted with what was going on. And she discovered that the boss didn't have to change at all. So she had to look into herself. Very good. It's very recognizable, isn't it, that in, in situations we think the other person has to change. The other person is doing the thing that's wrong. Don't we? It's the boss, it's my boyfriend, it's my husband, it's my wife, in particular my wife, <laughs> who would need to change. If she could just change, everything would be just perfect. That's a common idea. When the truth is that we're, we're always in a position where we can unite the parties. We don't always do it, but we are always in a position to unite the parties. And it's a very good question to ask, what can I do to unite the situation, restore the relationship? Rather than, what can I get her to do? Or what does she have to do? Or what does he have to do? So it's a good point. Thank you. It's, it's more an observation than a question that if an organization cultivated this sense of peace, I could only imagine that it produces a tremendous efficiency. Mm. Yes, no, I'm sure, I'm sure it would. Well, if you just trust your own experience, any time you're at peace in yourself, it's always accompanied by a sense of well-being. Nothing appears to be difficult. You can tackle anything, meet anybody. So I'm sure, I've no doubt, that more peace would bring greater efficiency. Brian, thank you very much. Um, you spoke a lot about agitation, 
Could you say a little bit more, perhaps, with regard to agitation and fear, given that fear in various kinds would presumably be a big part of agitation, and in what ways one acknowledges that fear but steps over it in whatever situation that might arise? Now, specifically, I'm thinking maybe in work situations where, personally, I would walk all around to, advo to avoid perhaps confrontation if I could, mm. you know, negotiating the <clears throat> way around, where that may not be appropriate. It may be better actually to address the situation directly. But I know by doing that, it can create havoc initially. So therefore, it's more pleasant to feel if you can keep negotiating your way around this. Mm. And you get 95% of the way, but you don't quite get the 100% of the way. No, and it's not very satisfying, is it? No. No. Fear seems to have two main effects. There's either the, the frantic agitation type effect from fear, or there is a freezing effect, a sense of not being able to move. And with the first one, the idea would be to try and fall still. And with the second one, the idea is to try and move. So if fear is freezing you, it's to, you know, what is the next step in this situation and take it. If fear is making you frantic and agitated, it's to try and fall still and then say, what is the need now? But fear is a crippler. Burke said that there's nothing takes away the power of reasoning and thinking as much as fear. It cripples the mind and how it works. But the small practices like stepping over a small fear every day, not easy to see, but realizing that it's imaginary, it's an entirely imaginary thing, fear. It's often described as this one-sided wall. One side, it's, it's very fearful and intimidating and it's quite a small circle. But the moment you've stepped over it and looked back, there's nothing there. In relation to what we spoke about earlier, I was just interested in your line where, as I understand it, you, you seem to suggest that you don't necessarily run into confrontation too easily, but that you use reason and discourse to get around yeah. that. So I'm just wondering, I mean, is that really what one should be doing in th these situations? And only use confrontation as a very, very last step, but try and negotiate your way through most things? But you would never use confrontation. Confrontation isn't something we would use. It's usually something we try and avoid or we think is going to happen. The real, I mean, the real approach is one of surrendering to the actual situation that you're in. We're hell-bent on wanting to know the outcome or thinking we know the outcome. We think when we meet with so-and-so that it's going to be confrontational. And we have that all conjured up in the mind before anything happens. And if we carry that around for a while, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's really to spot that that's an imaginary thing. That's all cultivated out of nothing. Totally imaginary. We build it up into a great big picture of negativity. to actually realize that that's an imaginary thing and respond to the event fully, meet the person fully. A bit like what was said earlier, surrendering one's position 
means the key to negotiating is surrendering your position. You can't negotiate when there are two opposing views. Somebody has to stop for there to be the communication between the two parties. So it's surrendered the position, it's engaged fully with the person, realize that the fear is a speculative, imaginary build-up. Okay, thank you very much. I can see how, um, like in the workplace, you want to try to avoid confrontation um, when it's not necessary or when there's another way around it. But what, what if you have a real ethical concern, per se, with something that's going on in the workplace? Like, what do you think is the best way then to go about dealing with that? Because I think it's one thing to hold a position so strongly when you know you can in some way surrender it because it's because of pride or something else. Mm. Whereas when something of really, like, uh, something that is more ethical in nature is concerned. The same principle would apply. You would address the situation. Surrendering a position doesn't mean abandoning principles. It means surrendering that ground on which you're standing, which makes it difficult for you to hear and difficult for you to see the other person's point of view and difficult to speak. So it's not surrendering principle, it's surrendering the position that you're holding, which will be a view on the thing, on the situation. But it doesn't prevent you from speaking. But even if it's an ethical, so-called ethical view of something, it could be blocking your capacity to see and to speak and to listen and to understand where people are coming from. So it's to surrender the position, hold to principle and speak truthfully and be brave. Because it does require bravery to actually face these situations, doesn't it? It requires a little courage. It requires a little courage to face ordinary situations every day of the week. Is that all right? Thank you. Surrendering a position doesn't have that litany of requirements that you've just listed. Yeah. How do you surrender your position and sort the guy out and get him to come with you? And That's not surrendering anything. But I'm not too sure how to do it. Okay, there's no how. It's not a how, it's not a mental trick. You just give up your position and you engage with the other party in the, the best interest of whatever unites the two of you. So if it's a company, or a marriage, or a friendship, you surrender your position and engage fully in the interest of that situation. That's like give up your position. It doesn't have a list after it. If you could just consider a husband and wife arguing, 
if one just surrenders the position and thinks of the marriage, the whole situation would change dramatically. But you can't surrender your position with conditions. You can't surrender it and think, oh, I'll surrender it on the basis of X. That's not surrender, that's commercialism or bargaining of some sort. It's surrender your position and work in the interest of the marriage in the example that I'm using. So, for example, I'm really uh, extending this as a result of what that lady just said. And, you know, okay, she was talking about ethics and stick to the principle and, you know, you were saying be brave and have courage and etc. But how do you do that if it is a case that a company is very hard fast in, you know, they're, they're going to lose money, for example, or, you know, they've invested a huge amount in research, be it scientific or otherwise, and, you know, how do, how do you stand back from that and yet hold fast? I, that's, what I'm, that's what I can't figure no, out. You, you, you may not, you may not win, but you may not win out. You may have to surrender your position, you may have to stick to principle, go and have a conversation. You still may not change the company's way of behaving then you have a different decision to make, whether you wish to work for them or not. Depends on the nature of the, of the situation. Okay, gotcha. You could practice this in very small ways. I was on an escalator coming out of Dublin Airport recently, and I was standing in the left-hand side of the escalator, is that all right? And which is the free-flowing side. Okay? And there's a lady standing in front of me. Now, what was going on in my mind, do you think? I was in a hurry, I should point out. What was going on in my mind? She's a bit stupid and it had to be a woman. Why did she get out of the way? So what was in my mind and heart was get out of my way. <laughs> now, so that's a position, isn't it? That's a very strong position. Now, at the same time, I realized that there was a person behind me, and I considered for a moment what I was doing to them. So I abandoned the desire to shoot up the escalator, and I moved in to the right. And this person behind me said, oh, thank you. And the volume of her voice encouraged the lady in front of me to also move to the right. <laughs> And the whole staircase loosened up and everyone just flowed up the stairs. But there was Muggins in the middle of it all causing the problem by just holding this position in a very simple instant now. But just seeing the position here, dropping it and literally doing that allowed the whole thing to change. So it's about recognizing this attachment to my point of view in any situation, be it a very small situation or a so-called larger business meeting or whatever. Oh, I know. I realize the danger of this, uh, and it cause, can cause huge harm rather than good. Oh, and it is, as you said, funnels down the company and in families as well, and yeah. you know the children, etc., etc. So, yeah, small changes can. The shifting the of the position, yeah. suddenly yeah. the vista changes and you see differently. Yeah. But I was very amused that day because there you are with your righteousness yeah. <laughs> and right on your side even. She's in the wrong bloomin' side of the escalator for God's sake. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you.
Don't ever let me catch you in the airport on the, uh, <laughs> on the wrong side. Brian, is the ability to maintain silence culturally influenced? Well, let's just say there are different types of silence. And there may be some silences that are, you find in cultures, like I was in Switzerland recently, or some months back, and I woke in the morning and I thought it must be snowing outside. You know that lovely silence that you associate with snow? I looked out and there was no snow and the streets were crowded. And I went downstairs and I went outside and I was standing there looking around at people going quickly and busily to work without saying a single word. So that was a type of silence. It didn't seem attractive, but it was a type of silence and it did appear cultural. The silence that would be associated with the peace we spoke of this evening would be a compassionate silence, a very comfortable silence to be in comfortable for both yourself and the person who's with you, or the, the people who are with you. There's another type of silence that has a, it's a silence, uh, it's a critical silence. Your mouth may be closed, but there's a lot going on. That's agitating for you, and very uncomfortable for someone in your company. So, the former should be cultivated, and the latter should be dissolved in some way. But peace and silence doesn't really mean just having your mouth closed. A story from a school in England where the headmaster was addressing a group of boys, 400 boys, and when he walked into the room, the room was completely quiet. And he went up to the podium and he banged his fist on the podium and he screamed, silence! And then, apparently, the room was absolutely silent. So they were outwardly silent at the beginning, and they were inwardly silent after he banged his fist. So inwardly silent is what we would be looking for, I would hope. That description of the wise man in the talk about when he sits, he just sits, and when he walks, he just walks, and there's nothing else going on in him, that would be desirable and most effective silence. Brian, may I just make a comment in relation to the difficulties which was mentioned here by many people in, in negotiation, trying to resolve some difficulty which is causing agitation and causing, causing problems. A recent study abroad, it was in Britain I think, a management study showed, showed that the the gender issue is a real factor. I mentioned human nature. You can't avoid that. And this, this, this uh, study showed that where two men were negotiating uh, an opposite size, or two women, they were less likely to reach an agreement than where a man and a woman were on either side. Apparently they were more likely to get agreement because when two men were negotiating, it tend to bring, tended to bring out the worst in them, and similarly mm. with two women. But when you got, and this was recommended now, mm. it's a scientific management recommendation, mm. that in negotiations, bear this in mind, 
So if you're Bring going to negotiate with a tough, tough, tough girl, send along some charming guy like you there, you know. Uh, you know, that, that, would, that would more likely to get, get a, a, salu- a resolution mm. than having, as say, two men or two women mm. discussing it. So I think the gender issue and human nature is important too. No doubt. I'm sure that there are occasions when the mix of gender would be very helpful in negotiating. But the principle would still stand that the key to negotiating is surrendering your position, whether you're male or female. It comes down to this capacity to be able to surrender and work in the interests of the bigger picture rather than a, a small view of things. No, I could see how what you're saying, I could see how they would arrive at such a study or such a finding. Ladies do bring a softness to things, or at least they can. Certainly in a work context, I would work with lots of groups of people, and I'm always very happy when there's a good number of ladies in the room. It does bring a, a difference. So, all done. Happy to, happy and satisfied to leave it there? We're at peace? Very good. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.